One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to your book podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector Daisy Buchanan. This is the show where we take you for an aural snoop around the shelves of your all-time favourite authors. If you've ever fancied being our guest and showing me your favourite things to read, you can. All you have to do is pre-order my new novel Limelight in hardback from bookshop.org and you'll automatically be entered into a draw to win a money can't buy prize to be a guest on the podcast. Limelight is a story of sisterhood, sexuality and self-esteem. It's about being a sister, being a daughter and being naked on the internet. I can't wait for you to read it. If you'd like a signed copy of any of my books, including my novels Careering and Insatiable and my non-fiction books The Sisterhood and How to Be a Grown-Up, you can order them through my lovely local, The Margate Bookshop. They deliver nationwide. If you're buying books on the Kent coast, I strongly advise paying a visit. Also excellent, Book Bodega in Ramsgate and Harbour Books in Whitstable. I had a lovely time at Harbour Books interviewing former podcast guest Catherine May. If you'd like a signed copy of Enchantment, they can hook you up. And if you're in or near Bath, I'm interviewing Jenny Jackson about her brilliant debut, Pineapple Street, at Mr B's Book Emporium on the 20th of April. Tickets are available online. Now, on to today's guest. Nell Frizzell is an acclaimed author and journalist and a very dear old friend. We have known each other since Twitter was all fields and I'm a huge fan of her writing. Her very funny novel, Square One, was one of my best books of 2022 and her new book, Holding the Baby, is also very funny and furious. It's essential reading for anyone who has known a parent or has been a child. Nell is a voracious reader, so buckle up. We talk about Philip Larkin, nature writing and Pongwiffy. We laughed a lot. I hope you do too. All right, I'm going to ask a question about books. Um, Good. You have written a beautiful, brilliant book about motherhood and parenthood, which I adored, which we'll get to. But do you have any favourite mothers or favourite parents in books? Any worst parents? Good question. I've just been reading, I've just started reading Peach Blossom Spring by Melissa Fu, and it's a heartbreaking uh, depiction of a mother and her son um, in the 30s. They're refugees in China and they're fleeing. And there's so many moments in there where there's this like unbelievably painful kind of protectiveness of her son as they're walking through mountains and doing all the things that, you know, when you're I couldn't get my son to walk to the shop and then you read a story, you know, either real life or novel of a um, of a parent having to do that journey with a child. You just think this is an, an, an sort of 
another order of heroism. And does it feel different reading about parenthood as a parent? I feel like that's a really dumb question, but well, I'm curious about the answer. I think it does. I think, so I started listening to The Tenant of Wildfell Hall the other day um, because I've decided to catch up on my classics audially because I'm never going to sit down and read them. And there, what's her name? Helen Graham. It's really interesting that she's having this she's attacked by everyone in the novel for being too indulgent of her son and that she says she wants to clear the road of rocks to allow him to walk down and they're saying no he'll you'll spoil him he'll never deal with the world you've got to make him tumble on the rocks and skirt you know scrap his knee that's how you become a man who can deal with the world and I thought this book was written in like 1860 or something and we're still having the argument about whether as a parent you should be protecting your child and showing them sort of a sweet, sweeter, gentler life? Or do you push them into the sweat and toil of, of adult life and they will one day be ready for it? So I thought it is interesting that you see the same old arguments coming up over and over again. But I also remember reading God of Small Things and the scene, do you remember where she's, the mother is saying goodbye to her son as he goes off on a train and he says, I'm feeling vomity. And I this was decades before I was ever going to have a child and it completely ruined me. And I had to put the book down for about a week before I could come back to it because it was just so heartbreaking. So I think you become probably, I don't know if you become more sentimental, but you certainly become more vulnerable. I wonder, because I don't have children, but I wonder if it gets even more visceral. Right before Christmas, I read Our Spoons Came From Woolworths by Barbara Commons. Um, okay. And it's a novel, but I think it is quite autobiographical. And her experience of giving birth and poverty, and she's an artist, she's married to an artist, he's feckless, they're both really young. He just kind of says, well, I don't really want to have this kid and wants to have nothing to do with it. And she Lovely. is one of the most vulnerable heroines ever. And it starts in quite a jolly, like, oh, this is going to be fun and bohemian and lots of parties. But right. I think if someone had set, told me, oh, this book is going to be quite dark and sad and, you know, about real kind of deprivation and poverty... I might have gone, oh, not for me, no thank you. But not I'm so Christmas, glad. Not over the I quality <laughs> But I was like weeping quite openly on the track. That sort of crying that books sometimes do where you feel like you've, you're about to come down with the flu. And then you remember <laughs> you've just read a very sad book because it's such a beautiful and moving experience of a mother who just wants to be a, a mother and can't be the mother she wants to be. So mm. I don't know if I did have a child, I think that might have ended me. Do you think, because I think what makes me cry in books is not depictions of sadness or deprivation, it's nobility. Like that really gets me, someone being very honourable and noble in the face of adversity. I just can't bear it. Whether that's like memoir like um, Lem Sisse being just so noble and forgiving and kind and generous about this really quite difficult life. Or in a novel when you get one of those kind of... uh, those heroes who just seems to have a very strong moral core that will really get me probably because I've got no moral core my moral core (laughs) is about the same as my physical core in that it's sort of soft and malleable (laughs) as your friend I don't think either of those things is true and I think you're there is a a clear moral center in your in your fiction and your memoir and also I've seen you on a bicycle so you have yeah that's true I was thinking about I think I get that vibe from Colonel Brandon in sense yes. of sensibility yes. I think yeah. 
that integrity. I can't think of a more recent novel of someone that I've thought, oh, what a wonderful, noble. And maybe it's it's not always men, but maybe I'm particularly kind of um, heightened to good dads. Oh, a good dad in a novel will really get me, sort of get my... Um, heartstrings are plucking oh tell me about your favorite dads rob delaney's memoir just completely tore me apart limb by limb atom by atom and i think what the way he writes about fatherhood because it's funny as well as very heartfelt is completely amazing and inspiring and i sort of hate that word but it, it was very inspiring the way he writes about being in a long-term relationship i think that's the thing that in the heart that works, there's a lot of rightly attention on dealing with an ill child and the health service and the sort of celebration of the way that you can be held together by a community of caring nurses and doctors and specialists. But actually the way he writes about what it means to be in a partnership, to be in a long-term relationship, to have to have a, to be part of a team in which there will be stress and tension. I found that really beautiful because I think so rarely do we get what I think of as an accurate, useful depiction of long-term love in any books, fiction or non-fiction. I think that's so true. I really crave the love stories, the you know, after the happy ever after. Yeah. Like, is it Elizabeth Stroud? Is that her name? The, the woman who wrote the Henry books and... Yes. Lucy by um, the Sea. Yeah, so Lucy by the Sea I just read. And I love that, that depiction of a, a couple that come back together in their 70s and what it means to have had children together and to know each other and whether you can love or be in love with someone after all that time. I love Elizabeth Strout and I've not read that yet. You know, David Nichols is a big fan. And I think a lot about Us and how when I first yeah. read Us... I really wasn't ready for it. I think I was too young <laughs> and indigent. I'm like, well, this is just sad. And actually now the the texture and the shifting nature of, of love as it deepens mm. and how the sort of flashy romance kind of grows and evolves and that absolute, oh, it's because you saw that it's really smart, I think, and unusual. And I think Elizabeth Strutt does this so beautifully with the William books. And what was the one? It might just be, it might just be O William where right they're divorced and they sort of they come back together okay and it's this kind of vignettes and you know how their relationship is framed and being with these people who've got the most enormous amount of love and respect and tenderness for each other and yet mm. will never stop loving each other but don't want to be in a you know cohabiting romantic whatever I'd say relationship together. I'd also say Jonathan Coe does quite good dads and husbands and long-term partners I think they're they're sort of I haven't read Bourneville yet but those um even in the Rotters Club there are some of those dads who would like very prosaically quietly Englishly lovely you know there's a sort of version of an English kindness and patriarchy that's not bullish and it's not rich and it's not flashy but there's something really wonderful about it and then in what to carve up you've got completely monstrous people who are also brilliantly monstrous it's amazing to do both isn't it and mm. i don't know if you feel you know when you write fiction that the monsters are sometimes much more fun and to oh, write someone yeah. with depth and dimension who is capable of the awesome and the awful that's a <laughs> challenge i've really enjoyed writing men so i've just finished um the first draft of my next novel which is all about <gasps> yeah 
which is all about half siblings. And there's a couple of men there, one of whom is a sort of, he's a major protagonist. And to write a man after all, I mean, there've been men in my life for years and years, but I've never really tried the sort of thought experiment of being one on the page. God, they're so fun. One of them's a stand-up comedian. I've had my fair share of male stand-ups and they were always completely unfathomable to me. And then when you write one, when you write as one, you have to kind of, what do you do with the unfathomable, unlikely, dislikable, inexplicable behaviour that you saw in the men you were sleeping with in your 20s? Like you have to give it a reason. And that's kind of magic. It's magic. And very, that's actually very cathartic to step into the heart and brain and life of the kind of man who absolutely trod on your heart for decades when you're in your 20s and in your single years. And this feels kind of like Catherine Heine territory as mm-hmm. well. And it's a question, a place that we dare not go. It's complicated, isn't it, to have a very established and, you know, happy and adult life and yet be able to say, I am still troubled by something someone said or did when I was 26. Yeah. And also the the to confront the fact that that person will probably never know. Like they'll never know that they used my heart as an ashtray. They were just living their life and they were doing, they were following the kind of social cues or the emotional cues or their own crossed wires to do their very best or sometimes just to do. <laughs> and I've carried it. Like I think about the fact that Alex Miles who was a boy in my school, told me at eight that I was fat and needed to brush my hair. The guy has no idea that I've carried that around for like 30 years. And I think the same can happen with novels. You don't know, or with any book, you don't know the thing that is going to be incredibly formative. Now, this brings me on to something I wanted to talk to you about, which is that my mum, who is this unbelievably voracious reader, like read every Virago novel going reads at least two books a week and always has let me read everything so I was reading the like most exciting sex scenes in Rose Tremaine novels and I was reading everything but she never let me read Bridget Jones's diary because she said it was a she didn't want me to be exposed to that version of female neurosis any earlier than I needed to be isn't that interesting that is fascinating yeah um, I did and read I was it. <laughs> I was about to bring it up because I was thinking about Bridget Jones dad who I think is oh, much yeah. better than Mr Bennett who I would argue has no integrity who mm. that is based on but when did you read Bridget did it feel exciting and thrilling and forbidden and did you agree with your mother or not well I think at the t- so I read it probably when I was about 15 or 16 so when she'd stopped really having that much sort of control over what was going up the stairs to my bedroom and I now think in retrospect she might have been right because I was someone who struggled with body image and I didn't at that point hadn't really had a romantic or sexual relationship so why go into that with that kind of view of the way men and women treat each other and use each other and the sort of endless self-deprecation and self-loathing and and I think she she was probably doing it from a political standpoint but I also think from a as a sort of caring maternal act I really respect her for saying actually I don't want you to I do think it's a great book I think it's very funny I think um I then read 
No, I read Cause Celeb before I read Bridget Jones's Diary. And did she have any issue with that? Or no, she, she was fine with that. that. Fine. <laughs> she was fine with that. So I do, and like Helen Fielding, obviously, like the woman knows what she's doing. But that, and maybe, I don't know how it's aging now. Hannah Gadsby took a massive flying kick at the need for female self-deprecation. And I think I'm going to hopefully imbue that to my son that you like you can be funny and you can be wry and you can be insightful in the world and about yourself without always making yourself the butt of the joke the lowest common denominator the social inferior the sort of physically lacking oh there's a lot to unpack there that I'm really excited were you did you have books that you weren't allowed to read Oh, well, I wasn't allowed to read anything. I just, uh, I sneaked it all. Although I do remember, I think my sister got a copy of Valley of the Dolls for her birthday when she was like really young. I think it's sort of, because I think my dad has a, a very camp streak and <laughs> she wasn't interested, but I went off with it and I was like, yes, this is, this is the one. Um, Interesting. And I okay. think I got Bridget Jones out of the library and I'd, I've heard about it because so much of, my reading, it, Bridget Jones' world was those like glossy Sunday supplements. And we sure. never have, you know, fashion magazines at home ever. And I sort of aspired to to read them. But there was that kind of vibe about like, you know, this is the sofa you must have and this is where you must go for dinner. Because I was so bad at being a kid, but I thought, but I will be great at being an adult because I yeah. have all of this saved up. Yeah. I will. These restaurants will definitely still be open when I am old enough to go and, <laughs> and get my sofa. And I do sometimes think like, did I read a different book from everyone else um, with Bridget Jones? Because I, th- I suppose perhaps because I had really struggled so much with eating and my body and my body image and being Mm. so unhappy and Bridget was the first person I ever met who was everything that was going on in my head and had been going on for years and I think that if I'd been a bit more well adjusted about it it would have been really damaging but actually it was really really comforting that's so interesting so she was saying something that you had struggled to express or that you felt that Mm. you were alone in that's but also, I do remember that because her mum is just this sort of bizarrely, gloriously confident force, and she is so irritating. And there's a bit where <laughs> I think her mum's going on about getting a slow cooker, and you just like peel your veg and you make a casserole before you go to work in the morning. And the brilliant line is something like, "I don't think my mum knows how difficult it is sometimes to make a glass of water in the morning." Um, <laughs> But she's surrounded by people who know themselves incredibly well and have really clear identities. And she doesn't. And she's still kind of trying things on and trying to work out where she fits. I read it like YA, only... Right. I don't know why, but I a lot of the YA that was sort of around then for me was the kind of... Um, Philip Pullman-y, you know, fantasy and dragons. And I've just I've just never got on with dragons and I wish I did. But the fantasy world I wanted to live in was 90s London and going to Agnew Bay. It still is, really. Yeah. Like, I, I still have that feeling when I, I was cycling through um, Islington the other day. And for me, there's like a real... There's pockets of London that are still in a new labour world. <laughs> I <I'm laughs> to go back to them. Fiction, fantasy, like sci-fi anything even when I studied medieval English at university 
like Hrothgar, son of Flangton. And I just thought, I cannot do this. I don't <laughs> care. Beowulf, I didn't care. I, like even some of those Gawain and the Green Knight, I didn't really care. Like they were all eating fermented rye bread and tripping off their tits. And that's fine. But I was in a little terraced house in Oxford. It didn't mean anything to me. I wanted, I loved Sam the Girl Detective as a child. And I loved real people doing real things. And I still do. Sam the Girl Detective. Yes. Yeah, Sam the Girl Sam Detective. Miguel Detective which is... <laughs> Sam the Girl Detective. No, Sam the Girl Detective, who, God, it's been years, but she is an only child living with her single dad and he cuts her hair with the scissors that he uses to cut the bacon and she solves crimes and maybe she has like a hamster that helps her anyway I loved her because and you know I didn't even have the vocabulary for this at the time but she was a kind of independent almost genderless female heroine and I and I really liked her I also loved Pong Whiffy did you ever read Pong Whiffy yes those like filthy witchy women I've always loved and I still love and I read any witch book I read to my son so Bad Jelly and um Winnie the Witch and that one about witches school I love them because they're there's a sort of esoteric answer oh they're like they are the the taboo of femininity and they're wise women actually it's just great fun they're like filthy ratchety old women with spidery eyebrows who are like eating things scraped up from under their fingernails what's for a kid that is delicious and delightful and everything that you don't see it's the kind of thing you don't see in a certain kind of particularly american tv show where mums are just nice easy domestic sort of presences in your home um I like those gross women YA completely passed me by I just started reading adult novels at like nine and I really I was a really precocious child about reading so I remember at 13 reading A Suitable Boy by Vikram Seth which I don't even know if I could get through now but I just I think because no one had told me that reading was hard. Like I had the skill of reading and it's very annoying now trying to teach my son how to read because I don't remember learning how to read. I don't, it's like trying to remember being born for me. It was, it's just so far back. Um, but because I knew I could fathom the words, you, you know, it's like such an amazing skill that you can unpick the letters and then you can effectively read anything. So I was reading anything. And I noticed that adults were very impressed if I turned up with a big chunky novel so I was like what's the biggest chunkiest novel I can find (laughs) oh this like 700 page epic about India then I tried to read is it music and his Vikram Seth's next book and just thought actually I don't need to prove I'm not going to read this in my UCAS application form did you do UCAS application form I did personal statement I wanted to read English at university and it started by saying from Heidi at seven to Tessa the D'Urbervilles at 17, I've always loved reading. <laughs> Heidi was the first book that I read to myself. What led you to Heidi? Was there a copy around or did you... I knew that my mum... Did mom... you like Toblerone? <laughs> <laughs> I knew that my mum used to dress up as Heidi because her mum never let her have long hair. My grandmother always cut my mum's hair very, very short. And as a result, my mum never let me have short hair and I've had short hair as an adult ever since. So my mum used to dress as Heidi with plaits made of like hay and wool that she glued to her head. 
And so we must have had a copy of the book and I started reading it and I can really still almost taste in my mouth the descriptions of Heidi lying on a mattress made of hay, looking up at the stars, drinking warm goat's milk and melted cheese and just thinking, yes, please, if that's what it takes to, you know, if that's what... If I have to lose my parents and go and live on a mountain with an old man who doesn't like children, fine. I'll sign up for it. If I get melted cheese and it's starlight through my window, I'll, I'm happy. I'll move. <laughs> oh, I, I will read pretty much anything with really good, delicious food in. Um, mm. I still think all the time about the... Um, and I barely remember any of, say, the fantastic Mr. Fox. I just remember there were secret tunnels and the farms were mean. And at the end, there was this amazing kind of underground party. Beast. And it's just trolleys and trolleys of like plump, glistening chickens. And... <laughs> yeah, you won the scene from Hook where they're all eating pretend amazing food in novels. Is that the bangerang? <laughs> yeah, bangerang. God, I fancied Rufio so much. The hours I spent humping the sofa thinking about Rufio, my God, it's just incredible to me. I think this just came up on another podcast. I can't remember if it was Off Menu. On Off Menu, bangerang comes up a lot. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It might have been Crushed or Wheel of Misfortune. But I, I feel like, oh, we're... We're doing well on a podcast if a guest mentions their <laughs> fancying of Rufio and <laughs> food and hook. And I also loved Mork and Mindy. I think I... Oh, this is something I wanted to talk to you about to bring it back to books. I now read a lot of books by women and I'm very lucky that I'm sent a lot of books by women, a lot of non-fiction books by women. But I had absolutely no problem or qualms as a young reader and even a teen reader reading books by men about men and identifying with them. I remember that I loved, oh, like people like Philip Larkin and Bill Bryson. And it, like, if I think about my canon, Dylan Thomas and P.G. Woodhouse and like, you know, real men, and even Ian Fleming and completely identifying with them as either stylistically as writers. So I remember reading Bill Bryson thinking, I want to write like that when I'm grown up. Or reading about amazing male characters and thinking, yeah, yeah, that's a bit like me. I'm, I could be a bit like that. I had no truck and I still don't with spies. Fuck spies, honestly. Who cares? My husband loves spy novels, spy fiction and films. And I just think, just tell them the secret and then we can all have a nice time. <laughs> I don't understand it at all. Yeah, I was very happy reading almost entirely books by men and thinking, I can do that job. I, I would like to do that job. I'd like to be one of them one day. I didn't need to see female authors to feel like I could be an author. Did you have that? I really clearly remember Bill Bryson kind of coming into the house. And he's, you know, very, very, very fashionable in the 90s. Yeah. And picking it up and everyone in the house loved him and was reading him. And what we were saying earlier about how to kind of be self-effacing and not self-deprecating, how we can embrace our vulnerabilities and have a humour, a sense mm -hmm. of humour about ourselves without being like, oh, sorry, don't look at me, I'm shit. And I think that's what Bill Bryson does so beautifully. And I think it's because he's so outward looking and so curious. And I think as a reader, he really nurtured that sense of curiosity in me. But he, the way he sort of talks about immersing himself in culture. Yeah, and I think I can be in an art gallery or 
at the theatre and think everyone here is very serious and high-minded and earnest and is embracing what they're about to see and there's still a little voice in my head going <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I look yeah. like a grown-up doing this and I'm not one and Bill Absolutely. Bryson seemed to get that but also you know there was such a, a depth of knowledge and that his curiosity wasn't the wrong sort of curiosity at all it was it was more than enough yeah and also a rhythm to the way that he writes I still think for me if you're a non-fiction writer and you want to if you want to cover almost anything with a lilt of humor you know like you're not writing jokes but there's a rhythm of humor to what you're writing Bill Bryson is absolutely masterful like you might not be particularly interested in the subjects but you you would do well to at least see a bit of the prose. So I remember there being a description of going to the Ned Kelly experience out in like absolute <laughs> arse end Australia <laughs> and um, him, say, him saying like, and then a marionette of Ned Kelly and why not flew across the ceiling. And I'm thinking that and why not is like within M dash is thinking that is that's how you make it funny on the page. And it's uh, but I have to be very careful when I'm writing to and and sure I know lots of people on your podcast have said this before. I have to be very careful about what's going in because it will accidentally come out. So I read I was reading The Body by Bill Bryson for a bit of writing holding the baby and I think you can probably <laughs> you can probably see the chunks where I had just absorbed it entirely when I was in New Zealand I was reading the collected anthology of Sherlock Holmes and my emails back home got more and more like Victorian <laughs> flamboyant <laughs> verbose like really and like making... now I'm off to take some laudanum and play violin love now <laughs> yeah. but just like not, I wasn't quite like, I pray you're well, mother. But it was like, it was getting on to that. And I thought I've got to stop. And so I remember cycling to Piha, the beach, and there being a little mobile library. And I bought a bag of plums for a dollar. And I bought Michael Palin's um, book about Ernest Hemingway and thought like, oh, this will drag me forward at least a century. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make start making more sense. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. We'll be back with Nell soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen, maybe next time, the gorgeous new book by former guest and friend of this podcast, Cheska Major. Oh, when a rom-com is good, it's great. And this is truly great. Emma is a literary agent with a life we can all recognise. Husband, kids, dog and absolutely no time. And a feeling that she just needs to stagger to the end of the day and then she can start actually living and enjoying her life. Then tragedy strikes. And then things start getting truly strange. This is Groundhog Day. It's funny, it's warm, it's knowing and it's hopeful. I laughed a lot and then I had a really enormous cry. It took me a day to read it and I then thought about it pretty much every day afterwards. Maybe next time it's published by HarperCollins and out now. Now, back to Nell. I've been thinking a lot actually about Hemingway. He's one of those people that we feel we know so much and he looms so large in the writer's imagination as an example of what's possible. And then I don't actually know that much about him. I would recommend, have you read the book Mrs Hemingway? All about his wives. I have not. My husband recommended it to me and it is really good um, about those women. I would also say I've got here Travels with Myself and Another by Martha Gellhorn, which is brilliant. Like if you want if you want to see what his female sort of comrade was up to in the same period, she's brilliant. Also Dervla Murphy, Wheels Within Wheels. Like I love I love travel writing and I love uh, particularly I think now women writing about exploring Freya Stark and all of them that are there still travel writers can we become a travel writer like that that is a brilliant one Rosita Boland is that who I'm thinking of Um, okay and I love her and I love her voice and she's really funny and really great I suppose it's so I sort of I do miss the idea that someone like Martha Gellhorn could be telling us something completely completely new Mm. and now so much about the world is sort of seen and known and instead of those writers we've got people on tiktok going hi guys yeah yeah well dervla murphy has like amazing passages i I think she's in mongolia with a baby like her small daughter and it's so cold like you're you can't really wash and she's got like absolutely she's got wearing like three layers of leather trousers and trying I'm just thinking how are you wiping your child's bum like what's going then so that stuff is still really relevant and really exciting to me um also Mary Wollstonecraft as a travel writer an, an un an unappreciated travel writer letters from Norway Denmark and Sweden there's amazing scenes of her like rowing across these choppy bays some or some fjord with her tiny daughter illegitimate daughter and her nurse they're brilliant the courage of those women dazzles me but there's also a class element to that when we were talking Mm. about Bridget Jones I think one of the reasons also why it didn't necessarily land brilliantly with me was because I didn't know that version of middle class England until probably I was in my late 20s I hadn't really until I got no until I got a job and then I started to come across it um the kind of Volvo driving um Marks and Spencer's Blue Harbour Brigade like they just weren't really in my life my mum's a teacher my dad was a builder so we were like culturally middle class but 
the the kind of the version of middle class I knew was much more bohemian for mm. want of a better word and so I didn't I didn't really get that and so when I read people like Mary Wollstonecraft or um Devlin Murphy that kind of mad posh woman goes off and just like does what she wants was much more identifiable to me than wealthy girl what have I just read oh Graham Greene like wealthy couple are tortured by their own repression I was like I don't I don't know anyone repressed I don't really know know what's going on here why why don't you just tell her you love her what's the problem Musa Kwonga's book one of them is a really interesting look at sort of modern class uh from the point of view of race and gender and everything I would really recommend that because he went to Eton and then he went to Oxford but he and so he has this sort of interesting lens on the men who are now running the country. There's a Jimmy Cooper book called, I think it's just called Class. Um, and it's oh, a very right. 80s take on it. And she takes no prisoners. And I think reading it now, it could definitely do with a bit of a 2023 facelift. Sure. Parts of it have not aged well. But she's really good on a certain sort of middle class anxiety. Is bit, they're just constant. They're the only class who really preoccupied with class no one else cares that much <laughs> well as we've brought up jilly cooper i'm going to tell you that uh i read an awful lot now through audiobooks um because i am overwhelmed with guilt sitting down and reading books in the day i can't i just it it feels completely taboo like i'm not allowed to do it but i can listen to audiobooks while i'm doing my life and so there was a year in which i read all 30 hours of Anna Karenina followed by all 20 hours of Rivals, I think, or Riders by Jilly Cooper. And uh, I, one of the things I loved about, I think it is Riders, that these very posh sort of, the kind of people who are living in stately homes and they are jockeys or they are horse trainers or they are in that kind of ar- mm. aristocracy, They've all got like massive bushes. They clean their own baths. They are cooking baked potatoes for dinner. They have to get the train. Like there's the the super rich of the 70s to me are so much more appealing than the super rich of now. I don't really want to read books about modern super rich people because I just find them sort of... It's like when I think about Dubai for too long, it just makes me feel sad and worried. <laughs> if I, I think so if I read a book about a kind of a, a billionaire now, a billionaire playboy now has no romance to them, but Campbell Black has a certain romance to him because he has tins of dog food that he has to clean up. That are going mouldy in the fridge. Yeah. It's a story, a real, a true, a possibly apocryphal, I don't know the, the duke in question, some elderly aristocrat is staying at his daughter's house the old man was sort of was baffled and called his daughter for i don't quite know how do you know the story and i don't know how yes yeah my toothbrush won't foam because someone had always put the toothpaste on for him yeah yeah until he was in his 70s or 80s and i actually i've just um got josie long's uh book of short stories which is called because i don't know what you mean and what you don't um but josie and i used to live together and I remember us having a conversation as we often had late into the night about what are we going to do about rich people and there was a auction I think at Sotheby's from one of those big houses that was getting 
And they obviously had sort of having to sell off some stuff. And there was a golden hacksaw about the length of your hand span encrusted with diamonds that was solely used to slice the lemons to go in your gin and tonic. And at that stage, you just think, oh, yeah, let's have a revolution. Like, <laughs> we've got we've just got to have a revolution. This can't exist. <laughs> you see, I must confess that is obviously what I should think in my good, pure socialist heart. That if someone were to come to the door now and say, do you want this? You know, I, would not, I wouldn't pay many thousands of pounds for it. I'd be like, yes, please. <laughs> it would, yeah. It would delight me. And I think, um, I do, this Jean Rees is coming up a lot on the podcast. And I'm okay. thinking about her a lot. And this idea of sort of any book where you've got someone who is finding pockets of luxury amid great swathes of squalor. Have you read Passing by Nella Larson? Oh, such an a interesting, long time ago. Such an interesting sort of exploration of class and money and how those two things interact. But also because it's it's sort of... Um, was written during the Harlem Renaissance. So this is about the sort of emergence of a black middle class in America and how, because it's a relatively new social strata, those rules have to be enforced so strictly and the like. The laws are so tight and they have to be so harshly um, enforced. That was the book. I heard you talking to Janina Matheson about falling out of reading for a while. That was the book that really got me back in. After, I think, finishing one of my books, I just couldn't read for a while. And it's short. It's like 90 pages and it's absolutely brilliant. And I that got me. So if anyone listening is having a sort of reading desert, I would say Passing by Nella Larson is a good place to start because it's very achievable. I love short books, Daisy. I really love them. I was just reading um, The Dinner Party by Sarah Gilmartin, nice and oh, short. Oh, I don't know that, but if it's She's short, an Irish I'm writer. In. Yeah, Irish writer. It's very, in in some places, funny, in some places, very sad, but it, it you can whip through it. When I was thinking about books that I wanted to talk to you about, I thought about my canon. Like, what, what for me is the canon? The Wits and Weddings by Philip Larkin. Absolutely. I don't really know what the internal like what my internal geometry would be without that that having read that at 17 or 18 it completely it just chimes through me like the feeling of splitting a log the the moribund sad desperate lives of little people combined with the like hilarity and beauty of being a very everyday man I just I I love them but also um something like The Colour by Rose Tremaine have you read that I have not you'll love it it's so good people have like Rose Tremaine is a well-known writer right but people have never Mm. read this book it's set in New Zealand and it's all about the gold rush so another interesting look at sort of money and class in New Zealand there was a giant gold rush that came after the Californian one so a lot of the people who had been in America went over to New Zealand. But there was this interesting, gold is often found in New Zealand next to greenstone. And so um, the Maori population were valuing greenstone far above gold, uh, whereas the Europeans were valuing gold far above greenstone. So you had this sort of conflict over certain areas. And um, But it's a really lovely look but at the sort of madness that overcomes people. And I think in a, in a sort of Bitcoin age, we've got a lot to learn about this, that... Um, people living in complete squalor and filth and picking up terrible illnesses and staking out by rope 
patches of earth that they're going to dig. And then there's a Chinese farmer who's on the other side of the hill just growing cabbages. And he's the one, not a spoiler, he's the one that kind of wins out in the end because all these filthy men who are desperately scrabbling through the earth for nuggets of gold still need to eat. And so the man who's growing food is the one who manages to build a community and a life. I think it's so fascinating kind of what we value and how utterly subjective that is when we talk about class and mm. you know people who sort of say well this this matters in this world and if you're not aspiring to this or following this rule or if you don't have this you are nothing and it is entirely arbitrary and I think a lot about bitcoin um because you've put so much money into it you have to think all about of it, it. yeah 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 all those book- actually don't pay me can you pay my advance purely in bitcoin that would be great <laughs> Uh, Bitcoin and big buckets of Manalife peanut butter. That's the way to go. (laughs) They're my cabbages. AJ Pierce's new book, Mrs. Porter Calling. um, I love those books. AJ Pierce wrote, Dear Mrs. Bird, former guest on the podcast. The magazine, Women's Friend, gets a new owner who inherits the very glamorous Mrs. Porter, who seems quite sort of fabulous and angelic and everyone's quite seduced by her and she seems very sweet, very friendly. But she she writes the whole magazine off as big. Well, it's a bit Miz, isn't it? And she doesn't (laughs) like the problem page, which is the the backbone of the magazine. That's what our heroine, Emmy Lake, does and you know writes and and lives for and she just wants it to be this magazine beautiful pictures of couture and pictures of her society friends and her adorable dog and that, well this isn't useful for any readers <laughs> at all because people come because they want their problems solved and they want to know how to make their cabbage stretch for four meals and yeah thinking about what you're creating needs to be of use and of service and you can aspire to this sort of shiny blingy Dubai madness or whatever the 1930s or 40s version Mm. of it is but if it's not useful it has no if it's not relevant to people it has no no value at all and it's that it's a book about you know it's really fun and it's a really really you know quick funny read but it's you know moving and it's kind of stealthily profound about and I think it probably paired quite well with um with Rose Tremaine I love your recommendations Susie they're always brilliant so I will put that down think about class uh my friend Tim Burrows has written a book called The Invention of Essex that's coming out this summer I think which is so interesting a sort of social history of Essex because it was this there's been for several generations now the movement out of the east end into Essex then out of Essex into the east end out of the east end into Essex and the sort of where sort of creativity goes first and then money follows creativity and then the creativity is outpriced so the creative people have to move out and then the money follows them out and then they get pressed and then they move back in so Tim is he was born in south end he grew up in south end and then he moved back to east london and he worked in you know magazines and for the guardian and stuff and then he when he had kids he's moved back out to essex but it's just it's such a well researched piece of writing and it's got a lovely stream of memoir in there that i really like about being a dad and being a husband and raising children in the kind of modern world and to go back to your hometown, which is something that I wrote about in Square One and have covered in Holding the Baby, actually, the sort of the complete psychedelic weirdness of going back to where you were a teenager in your 30s and having to confront your teenage self 
um, and your current self in the same breath. <laughs> he did something that I completely love that I haven't done. And I, if I'd known about this, I would have put a scene in uh, square one. He was down by the seafront and he saw a man in like, I don't know, let's say in a lessy top and jeans with curtains. And he was like, Rory, Rory. And then realised, of course, Rory is now 38. And this was just a 17 year old boy who happened to look like his childhood friend. But because the setting was exactly the same, he completely lost his mind and just thought he'd somehow stepped through a portal back at, a, you know, 2001. <laughs> and the 17 year old's do you look like us because nothing has checked we've gone back again I know. everything is cyclical I know yeah oh that's good that sounds fantastic and that's conceptually so fascinating yeah as yeah, well yeah. the sort I guess the the psychogeography of what brings people to a place and what yeah. repels people and um again weirdly going back to not being self-deprecating this isn't a book at all but I just watched um Gemma Collins on oh, um, yeah. Celebrity Bake Off and I am fascinated by her and mm-hmm. more than the other contestants okay. who are all approaching it in different ways because everyone does. She was just adept at PRing herself and kind of saying, like, oh, you know, look at that icing and that's the most amazing colour. And did you ever see something that looked as good as that? And I'm so proud of that. And I was watching her and because, I mean, no one loses Celebrity Bake Off. <laughs> And I think the final, um, the showstopper, she was sort of saying, you know, well, like, I've got to be honest and this is not my best work. But the way she was sort of able to to talk herself up, yeah, I thought I could learn so much from this woman. And it made me think, I will bring this back to literature, I promise. One of my literary heroines is in The Europeans by Henry James and Eugenia, who I always get mixed up with Eustacia Vi in Return of the Native because they're similar names. Eugenia saying the greatest compliment a lover ever gave her was that she held her head like a pretty woman. And this idea that writers writing at a time when that was pretty much all currency that women had was their sort of attractiveness and sexuality. And were they either, could they make a good marriage or could they move through the world by trading off their sexuality, which Henry James... I think writes about in quite a subtle and moving way. And then you find the quite extensive letters he wrote to people about farting. You're like, okay, <laughs> many sides of this man. Like John Donne. I love, I love that twin thing. Um, I recently taught on an Arvon course with Clover Stroud, the, the mighty Clover Stroud, whose book, My Wild and Sleepless Nights, like really, I hadn't, when I finished Holding Baby, I went back and read it and thought, this is an absolute work of brilliance but she said something so interesting that she has always been comfortable in her body and I thought that maybe that's why when she writes about the sort of viscerality of life it has so much power behind it because she's always been in her body and in the world and there's not been the kind of lens of self-deprecation or self um reproof that has been there for so many other women writers maybe she can write about birth and sex and grief and nature in that way because she has always felt in her bones and blood you know the the full extent of herself oh that's amazing that's really really and then you combine that but then there's someone like katie wicks whose book delicacy Mm. has all that kind of power and insight and is so outward looking and captures people mm. with such wit and precision. But it's 
all the way through there's this kind of you know raw nerve of her her of her discomfort in herself in her body i mean that is what attracts me as a reader and a writer that sort of anxiety that people feel and i want to write about it because i i know i'm not the only one i think it's probably very unusual especially for women to just to feel yeah and there's a difference isn't there i guess between feeling right and feeling comfortable and feeling grounded and not being in your body at all and yeah. being in pain and anxious and sometimes hating it but always feeling it which I think I'm probably the latter interesting okay so we're gonna have if we're setting this up as a binary where would I be I think my mum is always amazed by the way that I recall the details of how things felt like she can't believe that I can remember giving birth because she, I think for her it's just become sort of sectioned off as unendurable pain <laughs> as I remember it moment by moment so I think I have always been in my body and I've always been in the world. Daisy, like I, I think about like the new trend in nature writing and I love that it's becoming something other than, you know, a white man walks across a desert. Uh, so a book like Rootbound by Alice Vincent or The Instant by Amy Lipchot, those books that uh, are nature writing, but from within a female body, I completely mm. love I don't know where I would put myself in that. I think in Holding the Baby, you talk about your self-consciousness and sort of anxiety and, and bodily discomfort. Oh, God, and it's yeah. In a very like open, generous yeah, yeah. way. But I remember thinking, oh, I'm really surprised by that because you write so like beautifully and vividly about those yeah. feelings. And, you know, I've, I've seen you sort of, you know, reveling in your body. And oh, be, I know. I, I think of you as somebody who really moves their body. I put my body out all over the place. But I think I used to sort of in my self-deprecating way say, oh, my body is like a Victorian sewer system. Like we all need it to be there, but I'd rather not think about it. <laughs> 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 Actually, I'm trying to move beyond that a bit now and sort of just accept the fact that this is maybe something like a chronic condition that I am unhappy with the way I look and always have been and always will be. And that that's something that you don't overcome. You just learn to live alongside maybe. And also growing old is a really interesting. I'm, I'm now noticing frailties in my body that I've not had before. I've always been incredibly lucky with my health, but full of like, white hot rage at the fact that I'm not good looking and I just really uh, what well, when I read books where there's just an unbelievably beautiful protagonist and I sort of think odd why couldn't I like if I had a currency if I could choose a currency I would have chosen beauty over wealth like god I just wish I could be really good looking but now at 38 that's not gonna happen that's just not going to happen. And, I, and you can build a life in sort of dialogue with that, maybe. I don't well, know. I, I'm not going to get off tell with me. you. Yeah. <laughs> well, if only we were not separated by the room <laughs> To do that, the thing that we do to each other, which is say, no, 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 but you're gorgeous, because, you know, that's how I you know, feel about the women I like and love. But also, I don't know how helpful that would be but firstly limelight the book that's coming out yes in, um june that is about a woman who has a sort of hates her body and hates her face but really longs to love it and mm. feels 
cripplingly self-conscious all the time and just so wants to have the power that comes with beauty and is able to online manipulate that to a point. And it's because she is so obsessed with her sister, who is her favourite person in the world. But also she thinks she sees Bean, her sister, as a sort of perfect, perfect Disney princess, mm. even though I don't think anyone else in the novel ever really does or ever sort of remarks <laughs> that she's got this real fixation on how, oh, my sister is a beautiful one and I am not. My original outline, rejected by my publishers, was... I wanted to write about a woman with severe body dysmorphia, someone who is quite dazzlingly beautiful and doesn't feel it and wants to be and can't see it and gets a lot of attention as a result of it. But it just, she thinks, oh, it's because everybody thinks I'm weird and strange and there's something really odd um, Mm. about me. We just, the guest before you um, to be coming to Future Ears, the uh, television presenter, Steve Jones, who's written a very good, moving, funny book. When I was a T4 super fan, also in my bliss teen mag days, um, I did a few, I don't think you remembered, but interviewing Steve Jones on the old like round table discussion. And he is one of those just sort of so like textbook, good looking, yeah, yeah. lantern jawed, like a, a cartoon. Absolutely. Like a sort of brunette Johnny Bravo. And I was thinking, and I was coming back from the gym and I thought I knew I had the soup with him. And um, I very much doubted that he, you know, would remember me from sort of 10 or 15 years ago. But also I was sort of thinking about the daunting. I thought, he's not going to want to look at my face on a Zoom for an hour. He'd probably just prefer to look at his face because who wouldn't? And I thought about getting a pen and writing, I'm so sorry on my forehead before thinking. I have to say, as we we talk, Daisy is so beautiful and looking so gorgeous. I find that um, very strange. And smelling amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I once interviewed Killian Murphy I can't even remember who for now um, in person. So I went into a room with him and that man is beautiful in a way that almost sort of defies physics. Like that, how can a face, how can you, how can it work? And yet it works so brilliantly. But I did that thing that I think those of us who are early journalistic experience was interviewing celebrities did that thing where I was like I'm gonna show him that I'm cool and that I'm not like everybody else so I just said like so like what do you think of George Harrison <laughs> what does it mean like yeah yeah I'm not I'm not superficial Killian I'm not gonna talk to you about acting I'm gonna talk to you about the Beatles uh, did you uh, come back with your interview and your editor said you were supposed to ask him about the film that he's in. Why are all these questions about the Beatles? Yeah, yeah. What, what are you doing? Good-looking people who... Yes, good-looking people in what, books. The lovely thing about good-looking people in books is you. we have total control over that. We can do all the casting. Who do you <laughs> think is the hottest person in a book and why? That's a very oh, kind of teen mag question no, to I ask like you it. as well. Who is the one... I mean... When I was breastfeeding my son, I had to read on a Kindle in the dark because I couldn't put the light on and read a normal book. And I read all of the James Bonds again. And I have to say, James Bond is James Bond for a reason. He is so fit in my head. And he doesn't necessarily, he doesn't anything like Daniel Craig, but he looks, he looks like like my husband on a really good day <laughs> uh, but someone who can take you to a restaurant and order for you like that 
there's a sort of weird part of me that has always been drawn to those male characters who seem to be in charge and taking control. Mm. It's very fit. In real life, that would be quite irritating. Awful. As a sort of a, a sexy novel one-off. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I still really fancy Daniel Cleaver. And I never oh, want to be really? that like a bad boy loving, but because no, 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 no. In real life, <laughs> awful, awful. I've probably known a couple of Cleavers and not Hugh Grant, but there's something about the, yeah. the book. Because he is funny. He is really funny. Funny is the most Im- sexiest thing, isn't it? It's the sexiest quality you can have. It truly is. So are there books that you are excited about reading? Oh, that are on my pile. Oh, the the. TBR pile. You're very relaxed about yours. Mine feels like I'm sort of carrying around a womb full of rocks when I think about all the books that I'm not reading. There is a book behind me called Mother Brain, which I haven't read yet, but I'm really keen to read. Um, I've just got, is it Rosie Kitchen's book by my bed, which is going to be a good one. Oh, I've just read The Equal Parent by Paul Morgan Bentley. That's a really um, interesting look at equal parenting from the standpoint of a gay man uh, raising his uh, son with his husband. I've got a Tessa Hadley book that I haven't read before. I've sort of held it back. (gasps) I can read that. That's exciting. I often find myself doing that with things I know are just going to be, you know, glorious and delicious. I've decided to try and stop. If I just, if something is... Stop hoarding. Yeah. (laughs) If I want to read something, I'm just... Going in. Going to go and read it. I have never read the final maybe four chapters of A Girl in Winter by Philip Larkin because I was loving it so much I never wanted it to end. So in a very weird move, I just didn't end it and I've still got it to finish. Oh, there's so many brilliant books that are on my to-be-read pile that I don't even want to sort of pluck ones out. There's a woman called Louisa Salmer. Uh, She's a British-Brazilian author. And she wrote a book called Everything You Ever Wanted, which is this sort of dystopian piece of fiction where people are sent off to live on a planet or on in this sort of strange biome. And it's being watched on a live feedback home. But there is this sort of haunting sense that maybe it's not being watched by anyone and it's not being funded anymore. And that was brilliant. And she wrote a book called um flesh and bone and water which is also a really beautiful uh more sort of straightforward novel about a child living in brazil so i would really like if she ever listens please write another one louisa because i think her books are brilliant i really Um, hope we have that power i'd love it if we did (laughs) yeah to give sort of commission things Mm. oh and you know what talking of which mary beard wrote a book called the good working mother and I really want that to get reprinted and re-released Ooh. because I want to know what Mary Beard has to say about parenting. Me too, very much. Um, Nell, it has been an absolute joy and delight. Um, I could carry on this conversation for years and I well, I'm gonna hope, and I dare say we will. A giant list of all the books that I wanted to talk about but waffled <gasps> on so I didn't get a chance. But yeah, I'll send them to you. Thank you so much for having me. Huge thanks to Nell. Holding the Baby is published by Bantam Press and it's out now. Honestly, it's not just for parents, it is for everyone and it will make us better humans. Your Book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find all the books Nell mentioned at acast.com slash booked and you can see a selection in our shop at bookshop.org. 
you can find us and follow us on social media at Ybooked. Huge thanks to everyone who has given us a five-star review. We really, really appreciate it. If you've been listening for a little while and you haven't done it yet, we'd still really appreciate it. It is the very best way to help people to find the podcast and perhaps their new favourite book. We'll be back next week. For now, I leave you with this from Cheryl Strayed. The useless days will add up to something. The shitty waitressing jobs, the hours writing in your journal, the long meandering walks, the hours reading poetry and story collections and novels and dead people's diaries and wondering about sex and God and whether you should shave under your arms or not. These things are your becoming. See you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.